Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There's a story about Ernest Hemingway, who once took on a bet to write a six-word memoir. He wrote, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. How would you write about your life in the pandemic in just six words? Here's mine, extrovert turning introvert. Zoom, love, hate. Senior producer Tess wrote, this is too much me time. And Josh tweeted, the cracks became visible and grew. I just love that. You can read more six-word memoirs that were shared with us on Twitter, at Where We Live. Joining me now on Zoom is Larry Smith, who founded Six Word Memoir. Larry, welcome to the show. So nice to be with you, Lucy. I understand Time called Six Word Memoirs the new pop culture haiku. So how did this all start? Well, it was um, almost exactly 15 years ago. It was a couple days before Thanksgiving. And I joined this goofy new platform called Twitter that no one ever heard of. (laughs) And I met them at a conference and I said, I have this idea. I had started a larger user-generated content site where anyone could share a story. We had all sorts of different uh, sections, but we didn't have word limits. And it turns out when you give a a storytelling prompt a constraint, in this case, six words, as you said, based on the old Hemingway legend that he wrote a short story for sale, baby shoes never worn, magical things can happen. Now, Twitter had a sense of this and so did I. So a couple days before Thanksgiving, I tweeted out my first tweet, a very simple tweet. Can you describe your life in six words? Then I went home for Thanksgiving. And, you know, Lucy, on Thanksgiving 15 years ago, we didn't check our email. And maybe we'll try that again this year. It's a different time. Right. I had 10,000 submissions of people sharing their life in six words on Twitter and on this platform I had called Six Word. I started Six Word Memoirs. And it turned out the constraint did not get in the way of uh, uh, creativity. It it fueled creativity because blank pages are scary for everyone. So that was 15 years ago, a simple tweet before Thanksgiving and amazing things have happened with this simple form uh, since then. People really open up. I mentioned we put out a call on Twitter. We got so many great submissions. Uh, Garrett writing, I am running out of sweatpants. Sean wrote, worn down, fed up, still here. And another one of my favorites from Kathy, last mile of marathon on repeat. I understand your son had a, a good one too. Yo, my, my son, my son uh, his six words are, finally, I can mute my teacher. <laughs> so now you have a new book out and you're focused on the pandemic, but you're talking to students, parents, teachers. Tell us about it. Well, after the Six Word Memoir started and the first book came out um, in 2008, unbeknownst to me, teachers said, oh, this little short form of storytelling could be good for the classroom. It's a way to get kids talking. So Six Word, if you're stuck, can break the ice because blank pages or blank computer screens are scary for all of us. 
but could also connect you. So if we all share a story in six words, your community, uh, the folks at the station, a classroom, a dinner table, we get to know each other better and we open up a little bit. So teachers started doing this and I started making free teacher's guides that teachers can download at the, at the website. And when the pandemic hit, I knew I didn't know how to make a mask or be useful in a hospital, but I could quickly give teachers some simple prompts. They can figure it out anyway, but I just wanna make it easy uh, to sort of give their students an easy way to share pandemic stories. And that guide that I did in April, 2020 was downloaded more times in the first two months than the previous five guides combined. So we know students love to tell stories. We know sometimes they're stuck and we know teachers can use any tool in their toolbox because especially during the pandemic, they are just so overwhelmed. Uh, one of the contributors in Connecticut is Rachel Lloyd, who's an English teacher at Suffield Academy. She joins us now on Zoom. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. So tell us how you heard about Six Word Memoirs and what did you contribute? So I had heard about it um, from some other teachers in my department, um, and I teach all freshmen. And so last year, as we headed into our nonfiction unit at the end of the school year, um, I thought it was just a great way. Um, I had saw Larry's um, teaching guide that he had just brought up, and I had posed those questions to my class. And we looked through the website, we read some examples, um, they picked out some of their favorites, and then I tasked them with trying it on their own. And it was just a great um, experience where, again, their creativity was flowing and they had a lot of fun with it. Looking back at the last, gosh, is it 19 months now of the pandemic? What's your six word memoir, Rachel? My six word memoir was, are you okay? Now on to Shakespeare. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and so what about some of the ones that your, your students shared? Do you remember some that you wanna mention right now? Yeah, so um, two of my students um, actually made it into the book. So one was from my student, Jack, um, who wrote, Rona ruins school, so does Monday. Um, and then another one was from my student, Kivana, who wrote, same movie, watched over 10 times. <laughs> nice. Again, uh, you're hearing Rachel Lloyd, who contributed uh, to Six Word Memoirs. Larry Smith's the founder and editor of this really great idea. So, Larry, uh, tell us the title of uh, this book, of this compilation. Well, the title is a, you know, a tribute or a, an homage to uh, Alexander's Terrible, hor Horrible, No Good Year, you know, a classic <laughs> kid's book. And this book is called The Terrible, Horrible, uh, Alexander's No Good Day. <laughs> we didn't have a day. We had a year and now years. It's a terrible, horrible, no good year. Hundreds of stories on the pandemic by teachers, students, and parents. We, there's a lot of ways to look at the pandemic. We just thought, let's just go with the educational lens. Number one, it's just uh, such a big part of so many of our lives. And also just for the Six Word Memoir Project, there is no part of the different ways Six Words has gone in this past decade and a half that's been more meaningful to me um, than what edu teachers have done. And you know, the fact that, you know, to, to have a book where we can put in hundreds of students and teachers in a book, and it's a big kick for all of us, no matter what our age, to, to be published and, and to feel that kind of that rush and to talk to Rachel here today uh, is just such a thrill for me. Well, when you look at the book, uh, Larry, uh, are there particular ones that really stand out to you, common themes? Uh, you know, it's been a, a hard year for so many, but I think also people are, are maybe at this point, maybe looking at it in a humorous way uh, when they think about a six-word memoir like your son. <laughs> well, you know, uh, Tess mentioned about exceed, uh, you know, too much me time. And there's, there's one I love, which is 
a quotient of family time definitely exceeded, you know? <laughs> so the grass is always greener. But, you know, I did see themes. I mean, and there's actually a flow into the pandemic, I think, what we've all gone through that sort of I try to flow through the book, which is that first exhaustion. Um, here's one by Lucy uh, Lucette Cortez, age five. My heart misses a million people. Um, mm. I'm surrounded yet all alone by Finn, age 10. But then you sort of see resilience. Um, you know, um, you're, uh, this is one by a teacher I really love. This, you're a primary source. Take notes. This is happening. Let's note what's happening. We're all, it's not just um, NPR stations in New Yorker and these places we've all heard of, but each of us are a reporter in this time. And then you get a lot of humor. This is by uh, Elon Lee, who um, created the Exploding Kittens game, which uh, any parents with young kids may know. YouTube, neg negligent co-parent, Inavent inattentive teacher, savior. <laughs> so he's having some fun. <laughs> Exploding kittens is one of our favorite games, Larry, at our house. Uh, oh, yeah, you have kids at a young age, exactly. <laughs> right. And so, Rachel, I wanted to go back to you. So it says that you said that your students really embraced this. You know, how are you, are you continuing uh, to, to use six-word memoirs in your classroom? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I think it was really great because I had incorporated it at the end of the school year um, last year, and it really just gave um, my class a sense of camaraderie working together. They were laughing the whole time um, that they were creating them, running them by each other, um, and really making it a class um, classroom activity where they were sharing and again getting kind of vulnerable um, and seeing connections between one another. Um, and so I definitely plan to utilize it again this year and, and something that I find just so great about the six word memoirs how versatile it can be and how specific or how broad it can be. Um, and it can really just be um, a kind of way I've used it this year is just like a check in with students of like six words of how your week's going or six weeks, six words about like the beginning of the school year. Um, and so it's been really fun to kind of keep incorporating that as I go. I wanted to share a few more from our, our listeners. Rima wrote, I wear different pajamas for everything. And uh, also Julie, longing for a change of scenery. And so Larry, uh, you've learned since you founded this uh, Six Word Memoirs that you can really apply this uh, to, to anything. And so I'm wondering, you know, what's your next project? It's, it's, you, it, I've done six word projects with environmental groups on water. We've worked with veterans, you know, speed dating sites. It is because it's all about storytelling. And if we can find a way to unlock storytelling in all of us or to bring big ideas down to the essence, um, you've got a, a magical little tool. I, I, used, I thought it was a form of self-expression. Now I realize it's a tool <clears throat> to get to the heart of anything. And, <clears throat> you know, what's next is really continuing on this path with education and, uh, you know, really inspired by <clears throat> how teachers have used six word members for many years, but especially these last year and a half. Um, I'm working with this publishing company to create a program where any teacher from basically K through 12 can make their own classroom book. So it's, it's a longer story, but you get a free teacher's kit, we give you guides, and there's a process for any classroom to make to memorialize fourth grade, to talk about what it was like to be freshman year and or just sophomores in high school and miss your junior prom during the pandemic, really on any topic. And, um, it's, for me, it's like the TEDxing of six words. We're putting this tool out there. We're hopefully making it easy. And we're just spreading this, our form of storytelling, which is, you know, I'm just so grateful that it's been so effective and useful. So any teachers, please get in touch because um, I'm really excited that my, the next few years of my life are all about you. 
And Larry, what's the best way for educators and others who want to learn more? Where can they go? Yeah, so sixinschools.com, just S-I-X in schools.com, and it's all there. And we really, uh, we have testimonials from teachers who, just like Rachel, who just to wake up in the Bay Area early and just to hear how Rachel's classroom used to form and, and the, the witty and, and intense and lovely uh, six-word memoirs by your students. It's why I do what I do. And uh, I'm just so grateful that it has a utility in education, which is as a father of a 10 year old, I've, I've got some, uh, you know, I really want that to work. Again, you've been hearing Larry Smith here on Where We Live, founder and editor of Six Word Memoirs. Larry, thanks for your time. It was such a pleasure. And also Rachel Lloyd was here. She's one of the teachers that contributed to uh, Larry's latest compilation. She's an English teacher at Suffield Academy. Rachel, thank you. Thank you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, we're going to get the latest on COVID-19 in our state, including the news so many parents have been waiting for. The FDA has approved the vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds. And Connecticut health officials say the rollout is likely to begin later this week. Also, do you have a question about who should get a COVID vaccine booster shot? Here's the number, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a question on Facebook or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, when I read Connecticut Department of Public Health statement last week that children 5 to 11 will most likely start getting the vaccine later this week, I immediately called my pediatrician. My kids can't wait to be vaccinated so they can visit their grandmother in North Carolina. It's been more than two years. So how will this next phase of the COVID vaccination roll out? And do you still have questions about who should get a COVID vaccine booster? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or share a question on Facebook or find us on Twitter, at where we live. Uh, we know that Connecticut, Vermont, and Maine all lead the country with the highest number of total residents fully vaccinated, more than 7 out of 10. Joining us now to help answer your questions, on Zoom with us, Dr. Ulysses Wu, Assistant Director of Infectious Diseases and Chief Epidemiologist at Hartford HealthCare. Dr. Wu, welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. 
So let's start with the big news that came out of the FDA late last week that uh, they've approved the COVID vaccine for five to 11 year olds, but it's still not quite a done deal. What has to happen next? So yes, the advisory committee certainly has met. And so what will happen is that they're going to have to make a further decision on this. Um, uh, and what will happen with, with the CDC in conjunction with the FDA is once this decision is made, then they'll be able to roll it out. And that could be happening tomorrow. Is that the, the latest? That would be nice if this can happen tomorrow. <laughs> and if it does happen tomorrow, it's going to take a little bit uh, time for the machinery to gear up. So uh, please, everybody stay patient, but it's going to happen sooner rather than later. You mentioned that the machinery needs to gear up. And so that relates also to the dosage for kids 5 to 11. Could you, could you explain that for us? Yes, absolutely. So the dosage uh, for, uh, for the kids 5 to 11 is going to be about a third what they would uh, usually use for those uh, in, the older age, in, in the older age group. And so uh, not only uh, do they need to get the correct doses out, but they need to make sure that, that they have the appropriate distribution channels as well as the appropriate storage. Uh, so a lot of things certainly need to happen, but I don't want people to think that this is all going to start tomorrow. People have definitely been getting ready for this prior to this, for sure. Now, when we talk about uh, the dosage, so right now, just the Pfizer COVID vaccine um, has gotten initial approval for this age group from the FDA. And so uh, what do we know about the trials uh, over the last uh, several months? Because a lot of parents are wondering, you know, is this something that my child really needs? Yes, and so let's let's start with that last part. Is this something your child needs? So one thing that I have been saying is that vaccine or vaccinations is no longer about the individual. It is actually about society and it's about extending bubbles. And you talked about visiting grandparents in North Carolina. So the vaccine, what this does is it extends that protective bubble. And so what the vaccines and masking and social distancing have always been about is not necessarily not catching the disease, but extending that bubble and preventing transmission. Because once we prevent transmission, if we can get to a certain point, then we uh, then it, it won't be, uh, hopefully it won't be a pandemic anymore at that point. So mm. uh, that that's why the vaccination is important. But uh, with regards to the two things that parents need to know that are most important is, is it effective and is it safe? And in these trials, it certainly showed that it was effective. It was found to be about 91% effective in preventing COVID-19 in children ages five through 11. And then is it safe? Well, they look for adverse events and they're going to continue to look for adverse events. So I don't want people to think that they've stopped looking for this, but yes, is it safe? You get certainly the, the, the local side effects and the 24 to 48 hour side effects that one would maybe expect with any vaccination, but things that are some of the hot button items, such as the heart, uh, heart inflammatory disease, things like that, were not found to be increased. You're hearing Dr. Ulysses Wu here on where, on where We Live, a chief epidemiologist at Hartford HealthCare, as we talk about this next phase of the COVID vaccination rollout. Uh, expected uh, 5 to 11-year-olds uh, could receive uh, this vaccine. Uh, state health officials have said maybe later this week, again, uh, still needing that um, the final steps uh, to be approved. If you have a question, uh, we just talked about efficacy and safety uh, for Dr. Wu. Here's the number, 888 720 
877-220-0977. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, I'm sure when you um, talk about uh, the heart inflama- inflammation that was seen very rare in some older children, you know, that's what parents uh, are concerned with is, you know, that, that very small risk of something happening to their child. And so what more can you tell uh, parents who are worried about some of the side effects, Dr. Wu? Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's certainly a valid concern. And things like that, you've heard about maybe blood clotting associated with some of the other vaccines. The reality is, if you get COVID, your risk of getting heart inflammation, blood clots is going to be exponentially much higher. Um, and even though, and this is one of the things that I've heard mostly for kids is that kids certainly seem to do well when they get COVID. Well, we've still had millions of cases. Uh, we still ha- have had hundreds of thousands or uh, thousands of, uh, of hospitalizations and hundreds of deaths. And one would say, well, we've only had a few hundred deaths, 600 deaths. And I use the word only in air quotes because where's the line that you draw from that? But uh, with, re- with regards to that, vaccination can help prevent all of this. But even if kids do well, again, it goes back to that extending that protective bubble. We want to stop the transmission and giving it to somebody who may not be able to do as well. And so talking to parents about the concerns, the reality is if you get COVID, the chances of these side effects, I'm going to use that in air quotes as well, are much greater than the vaccine itself. And so that's what we call the risk reward, the pros versus the cons. Again, you can join us if you have a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, when we think about how COVID-19 has affected children, you know, there's also uh, talk uh, among parents and, and people in the public that, you know, kids who've gotten COVID, it seems they get milder infections. And so, again, when we think about the necessity of this uh, vaccine uh, to get us out of this pandemic, oh, how do you address uh, when someone says, well, kids, you know, it's, it's not something that's as serious for children as older adults. Correct. Yeah, it, it's maybe not as serious. But again, we've had hospitalizations. We have had deaths. And even those who did not die and survive, they still have some long term lasting effects. Not all of them, of course. But not only is it uh, is it all about the individual or the child themselves, but uh, it is about the family unit It is about the community. And what we've seen, uh, unfortunately, is that, yes, you hear the prototypical story of, well, the kid or the grandchild, unfortunately, gave it to the grandparent and the grandparent is not doing well. Uh, Some have unfortunately died. Some have remained in the hospital for quite some time. Um, and so we do hear that um, a, a lot uh, happening at this time. And so it all goes back to decreasing transmission and uh, having that, that as big of a bubble as possible. So for parents who uh, definitely plan on getting this uh, vaccine for their children, you know, how would you uh, counsel them in terms of, you know, what to look for, what to expect in terms of, as you mentioned, side effects to the vaccine? Yes. And so uh, the typical things that one would expect with the side effects of the vaccine is you're going to maybe have local arm soreness. That is for sure. And you see that with a lot of other vaccines. But as your body begins to build up an immune response, some of the other symptoms that you may see in the next 24 
it's usually 24 hours, maybe extending up to 48 hours, is you'll have a sense of tiredness, a sense of malaise, which is just not feeling well. You may actually have some fevers and chills. You may have some muscle aches as well. You may actually have a local rash uh, in that arm at the injection site or around the injection site. So these are some of the most common side effects uh, that you certainly would see. Headache, uh, swollen lymph nodes, maybe some decreased appetite as well. Uh, the, the side effects are more common with the second dose uh, than with the first dose, um, but most of them are very, very mild uh, or mild to moderate, and they usually occur within two days. I'm glad you mentioned the second dose for adults. Uh, I know uh, uh, members of my team, and I even noticed this the second time that we got the shot, you know, definitely uh, took us out for several hours. We did feel, you know, under the weather, but it cleared up within uh, 12 hours. Is that something that's to be expected as well with, with the second dose for children 5 to 11, Dr. Wu? Yes, I think that is certainly something to be expected. You know, with my anecdotally, with my second dose, I didn't feel a thing. And part of me worries that I didn't actually mount the immune response because there is uh, the thought that actually the, the worse you feel, the higher, the, the better immune response you've actually mounted to it. So uh, I, I'm going to be due for my booster fairly soon. And part of me is like, oh, well, I don't want to get it, but I mean, I, I want to get the booster. I don't want to get the side effects, but. I hope I, I mount a good immune response this time with it. So uh, it, it's a good and bad thing at the same time. But I'm mostly glad you good. brought up boosters. <laughs> good to hear. I'm glad you brought up boosters because that's where we want to go next. Again, you're hearing Dr. Ulysses Wu, Assistant Director of Infectious Diseases and Chief Epidemiologist at Hartford Healthcare. If you have a question about uh, COVID-19, whether uh, you should get the booster, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So let's talk about the booster. Um, who's eligible in Connecticut? Does it, is it vary state to state, Dr. Wu? So it does not vary state to state. So you are eligible for a booster uh, if you are 65 years or older, uh, and then certain subgroups, all greater than age 18. So those who may live in long-term care settings, those who may have underlying medical conditions, and then those who work or live in high-risk settings. And so what are some of those uh, work examples? We would talk about first responders, um, education staff, food and agricultural workers, uh, those who work in corrections, manufacturing, postal, public transit, uh, and groceries as well. So those are the people that are uh, eligible. And then if you have received Johnson & Johnson, you're eligible for a booster uh, if you are greater than 18 years of age, and you should get it at least two months after your shot, and you can get any of the boosters, what we call the mixing and matching as well. And you can get mix and match uh, with Pfizer and Moderna if you had received those as well. Again, you can join us if you have a question about whether to get a booster shot, 888-720-9677. Dr. Wu, you mentioned underlying medical conditions. That could be a whole host of things. So uh, maybe help our, our listeners decide, should they be calling their doctor or how do they know that they may have a condition that warrants getting a booster shot? Yeah, it's quite an extensive list. And so uh, so looking back at the studies, they are... they. they they've shown that those with underlying risk uh, with risk factors may go on to a progression of more severe COVID. And this list is not comprehensive and is really determined by your primary care physician. But some of the things that are recommended, things like 
active malignancy or cancer or chemotherapy treatment, uh, chronic kidney disease, chronic liver disease, those who may have chronic lung diseases, uh, anywhere from severe asthma or moderate asthma, all the way to uh, things like cystic fibrosis. Uh, there are others that you may think may not meet the cut, but actually do, dementia, diabetes, uh, Down syndrome, as they may have increased risk, those with uh, cardiomyopathies, coronary artery disease, uh, those with active uh, HIV, especially untreated, and finally, the immune compromised state. So these are a lot of uh, different conditions. Uh, now, some of the things that I don't really like to call conditions, but these are wonderful things, but those who are pregnant, for example, maybe uh, uh, may have a severe uh, illness associated with COVID, those who may be overweight or obese as well. And then there are blood disorders, thalassemia, sickle cell, smoking, uh, and then those who may have substance use disorders as well. So it's quite a comprehensive list, but yes, these are some of the chronic diseases or conditions that uh, one probably should look to get a booster. You mentioned uh, people who are overweight or obese. Unfortunately, that's a lot of our country. So when you say that, is that something that a person should call their doctor about or should they just go to their uh, CVS around the corner and schedule an appointment for a booster? Uh, you know, they can do one or the other. So overweight, uh, it's it's body mass index, which has its own pros, pros and cons, but we define it as uh, uh, greater than 25 and then obesity greater than 30. Um, yeah. So we have known that with those who are uh, who get COVID, unfortunately, those who are obese tend to suffer greater compli complications uh, associated uh, with COVID. Um, and the me exact mechanism is uh, unknown, uh, though there are hypotheses. And so, yes, they should definitely uh, really think about getting the booster. Mm. And could they just go schedule it themselves or do they have to go through their doctor, Dr. Wu? I think they can just schedule itself. Actually, don't quote me that. I'm, pr I'm pretty sure they can <laughs> definitely just go schedule it themselves. Yes. Again, you're hearing Dr. Ulysses Wu here on Where We Live. He's here to help answer your questions about the latest vaccine rollout for uh, 5 to 11-year-olds. Also, uh, questions about uh, the booster. We just uh, went over a lot of um, good information. But if you have a question, here's the number, 888-720-9677. Uh, going back uh, to children uh, briefly, Dr. Wu, Jill wrote on Facebook, um, hello, my 11-year-old will soon be 12, end of December. So what dosage should she get, children's or get the adult, which is, I think, 12 and up? Should she wait until the end of December? What a fabulous question. And so as we know, it's not like when they switch from 11 to 12, there is the, uh, they, they reach like a magical age where all of a sudden they transform into maybe the Hulk and they all of a sudden need uh, something different. So yes, they are currently growing. And so I would talk about it with your pediatrician, but right now, uh, unfortunately at age 11, up, to, up through age 12, it is the reduced dose. Um, so they have waited this long. I would say if December, if they're going to turn 12 in December, uh, they're probably they're going to be eligible for the increased dose. I would say uh, certainly go for that increased dose because we don't want them to be underdosed. Um, but this is something you should certainly talk about with your pediatrician as well. Uh, I know we've been talking about boosters, but when we think about getting out of this pandemic, uh, we, we've, we've heard a lot of uh, talk about, you know, 
this uh, virus, the COVID virus, may be around just like we see the flu. And so can you talk about that, like our expectations that it should be realistic as we move forward, Dr. Wu? Oh, yeah. Uh, So uh, the goal with the the pandemic is to get rid of the pandemic. And we certainly want to get it to... uh, to something where maybe it is seasonal at the most, that maybe we will will need annual boosters or boosters uh, every so interval. You know, my six word uh, poem would be, you know, winter is coming, mask up, vaccinate. And that's what I would like to say every year because that means we've gotten it down to uh, just sort of a seasonal thing. So what are we expecting? Well, the reality is if we don't if we don't get it to, sorry for the big sigh, uh, but it's it's a daunting task. And the goal again is to reduce transmission. And the only way to really do that is to get a certain population, uh, a certain percentage of the population vaccinated. And uh, we're unfortunately, even though we're doing very well as, as well as the surrounding states, we're not close to that point where I would expect, you know, greater than at least 90% vaccination that we could maybe knock this out of the park and and nip this in the bud, whatever cliche you want to use. And so I would expect this to continue that we're going to have waves. Um, the biggest worry right now is the indoor weather, or I should say colder weather, which would drive people indoors. And then with increased transmission, there's always the possibility of increased variants as well. And so if there's another new variant, and you've, you've heard of maybe Delta Plus uh, in the UK, uh, if another variant comes down the road, then we could certainly go through another wave and have to go through all this again. But with the lack, I shouldn't say lack, but with the decrease in mask mandates, we are actually starting to see an increase in respiratory illnesses as well. Um, and you've probably, if you all have kids out there, you've probably seen them having the sniffles. You've probably gotten them checked and they don't have COVID. But certainly we've seen an increase in things like RSV, rhinovirus, and then there's there's going to be other respiratory viruses that are are going to be coming into play as well. So my goal, and I apologize again for the big sigh, is really just to get COVID to be one of those other respiratory viruses eventually, rather than be front and center all the time. Again, you can join us with the question 888-720-9677 as we talk about the latest COVID-19 vaccination rollout uh, for uh, 5 to 11-year-olds and also uh, the booster. You know, there's also a lot of talk, as you know, Dr. Wu, uh, people under the impression that, hey, I had COVID, so why do I need this uh, vaccine? How do you address that? Oh, I'm really glad that you actually asked that. And so, uh, there's always a question, what is better, natural immunity or um, or the vaccine immunity? And uh, there was a time where maybe we had thought that natural immunity was better, but there's actually some recent literature that says the vaccine immunity uh, is actually better than natural immunity. But why, if you have gotten COVID, let's say that they are the same. If you've gotten COVID, should you get the vaccine? Well, we've certainly seen reinfections. And we also know that immunity does wane. Uh, If it is similar to other coronaviruses, uh, if everybody didn't know, we actually had four circulating coronaviruses every year prior to the novel COVID-19 virus. And those were the ones that were causing your colds, probably responsible to 10 to 15% of colds. And you could get those over again. And so that means immunity is not long lasting. But the reason if you have had COVID, And I'm very happy if you've had COVID that you've survived and you're doing well, you should get the vaccine because it really primes your immune response and almost makes you super immune as well. And so uh, that is one reason to certainly get it. 
And the other is to also decrease transmission. So if you do get COVID, uh, and I've talked, I guess I've said this a lot of times already, those who get vaccinated, you may be able to decrease transmission to those around you who may not have been able to be vaccinated or did not mount an immune response with their vaccination. So yes, if you've had COVID, please get a vaccine. Elizabeth calling in from Avon. Elizabeth, what's your question? In, hi, in, I am 67. I had a severe reaction to Moderna. I am very happy I am vaccinated. But after the second dose, I had an unbelievable pain of every joint in my body for 16 hours, just uh, worse than childbirth. Uh, I am afraid, I am I need, probably need a booster, but I am afraid to take it. What yeah, I, I'm so sorry that you had a reaction to it, and I'm so happy that you did get it. Uh, so, uh, uh, not the reaction, but the vaccines, and I'm really happy that you're protected. Uh, unfortunately, there's really not a great answer to this, except I can say that you're going to get uh, when you get your booster, you're going to get a reduced dose to it. And so that may alleviate some of the reaction that you've had. Um, and that's similar to the pediatric uh, dosing where it is a third. And really we found that they did not have an increased uh, reaction, local reaction or adverse reaction within the first 24 to 48 hours. And so um, you would, you, if you do get the Moderna, you would get the half dose uh, booster at this point. And I don't think, and you can't quote me on this, but uh, I, I, I'm hoping that you would not have as severe of a reaction. Um, if you are worried about the Moderna itself, um, there are other options out there for some of the other vaccines. So I'm sorry that that it happened, um, but I would still go ahead and go ahead, uh, go ahead and get the, the next, uh, your next booster dose. And did I hear you correctly, Dr. Wu, because with the booster, you can mix and match. Uh, so if she had a severe reaction to the Moderna, would you recommend she get a booster of another uh, COVID vaccine? Uh, it's difficult for me to say, not okay. knowing the entirety of the medical uh, case at this point, but uh, it is a half dose. So the reaction is probably likely related to uh, the, the dosage of the Moderna. So she could still get the half dose Moderna or uh, she could get a full dose of either the Pfizer and J&J of the other. All three are really still an option at this point. Thank you for that clarification. And something you said earlier that I wanted to circle back to when we I asked you about um, adjusting expectations as we try to get out of this pandemic. You mentioned uh, when we think about getting the population vaccinated, um, over 90% would help us get there. I believe Connecticut's more than 70%. So with the rollout for the 5 to 11-year-olds, could we get there, Dr. Wu? Yes. I Well, I think we can get there as a state. But I, you know, what I've said in some of my uh, other talks is that unfortunately it's it's if you light a candle uh, like a scented candle in one part of the room it doesn't mean that it's going to stay in that one part of the room and so we do live in uh, in a society where there is air travel and basically global the global size is basically shrunk due to our ability to travel from state to state from country to country and so uh, we can't form a protective bubble around Connecticut because people are going to obviously be leaving uh, in and coming and going, leaving in and out of Connecticut. And so even if Connecticut was to get above 90 percent, we would still need buy in from the rest of the country as, as well as the rest of the world. And so 
Uh, I don't want to be a glass is half empty, but um, until we get to that point, it's it's going to be a daunting task, unfortunately. Well, we have to end it there. <laughs> Would have been nice to uh, end on a hopeful note, but we do thank oh, you for sorry. all of the clarifications that you've given uh, us and our listeners. Dr. Ulysses Wu, Assistant Director of Infectious Diseases and Chief Epidemiologist at Hartford Healthcare. Healthcare. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, we're switching gears to help you decipher the latest changes to the Public Service Loan Forgiveness Program. Stay with us. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. We're turning now to student loan debt. While some wait to see if President Biden will cancel some or all student debt, thousands of borrowers are expected to reapply yet again to the Public Service Forgiveness Program. The U.S. Department of Education has used its authority to relax the rules because the program has not delivered on Congress's promise to help Americans who worked in government or nonprofit jobs and hope to have their public loans forgiven after 10 years. For clarification on the changes, joining us now on Zoom, Maggie Jondro, financial advisor and partner at Jondro Wealth Management in Farmington. Maggie, welcome back. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So remind us when I say the program did not deliver on Congress's promise, remind us how many applicants were denied. Sure. So the PSLF program began in 2007, which meant that the first batch of borrowers at earliest became eligible for relief in 2017. And that year, less than 1%. So the statistic I saw was 0.032% of applications were actually approved. Since then, the number has been slightly improved. Um, this past October, uh, data was released that it, that about 2% of processed applications for PSLF were approved, but nevertheless, the number is quite low. And why, why so low, Maggie? <laughs> and when we think about people who took on lower paying jobs uh, with the government, with nonprofits, uh, teachers expecting that, hey, we've done our due diligence, we're working in this field, we're paying our loans, and they still were denied. Yeah, there's a mix of reasons. So first off, um, the the reason the way to get PSLF um, has a lot of fine print. There's a lot of qualifying uh, factors, and so some students perhaps missed reading those, right? But others included mix-ups, um, such as something simple as missing a date next to signatures and never been told that 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 was a reason. Uh, furthermore, you know, these are um, federally backed loans, but they are serviced by third party loan servicing companies. So maybe if you have loans, you'll notice that you log into Nelnet or Great Lakes or Navient. And so some of the people that were servicing the loans um, gave mixed messaging or even wrong advice at times. So unfortunately, the communication around PSLF wasn't the best, and that, that's a big reason for um, people being denied. So talk about the changes now. So there's a, a waiver, and who should be reapplying, Maggie? That's right. So one of the critical reasons that um, 
people were denied was because they were in the incorrect loan. So again, private student loans do not count, but federal loans were told to count here. But you have to be in what's called a direct loan. And many people had federal loans like federal Perkins loans or the FFEL loan. And they were making payments thinking these are qualifying loans. These are qualifying payments. I should be eligible for loan forgiveness. But turns out if you did not consolidate into a direct loan, your payments were ineligible. If you made an overpayment, your payments may have been ineligible. If you were late on your payment, even though there is a 15-day grace period, your payments were ineligible. So you can see there was communication was not best with these payments. And so now what the Department of Education is doing is saying, well, if you apply for this PSLF waiver, these payments that were uh, not included or not counted towards your loan forgiveness payments, they're now going to look back and they're actually going to count them. So it it can really help a lot of borrowers, actually, um, given that they are, as you said, kind of reconsidering or relaxing some of these, um, these rules. How many borrowers are expected uh, to be helped? Because when you think about, what is it, like one and a half trillion dollars of student loan debt in this country, uh, you mentioned uh, people still need to have um, particular loans. And so for those who consolidated with the private company, you know, are they locked out? Unfortunately, those that consolidated with a private company are locked out and it doesn't seem there's going to be anything that this particular waiver is going to be going to do for them. But in terms of your question of how many people will actually be helped, the Department of Education released recent estimates that this limited waiver program alone will help over 550,000 borrowers with the average borrower receiving 23 additional payments when they look back and, and recount their payments. And actually, this um, this includes about 22,000 borrowers who will be immediately eligible to have their federal student loans discharged without any further action on their part. And, and they estimate that this will be about $1.7 billion in forgiveness. So while um, there's still probably a lot more reform needed with student loans and student loan forgiveness, this is a, a pretty nice start. Uh, Maggie, you're a financial advisor, and so how do you advise people who've got you know, tens of thousands of dollars of student loan debt, and they may or may not be helped by this particular program? You know, what's the solution for them? Sure. Um, uh, you know, every individual is going to be really different, and so I encourage uh, people to speak with their own financial advisor. Um, But what we first do look at is, are you eligible for any of the loan forgiveness programs out there? There's a teacher forgiveness program. There's, of course, the public service loan forgiveness program we're discussing now. But if you are in um, a corporate position, that's your employer, is corporate, you know, often refinancing does make sense. Um, While, yes, you're giving up all of the benefits that federal loans provide, um, you know, refinancing may mean a lowered uh, interest rate, which will save you money. It may mean a lowered monthly payment, which uh, can help your cash flow. But before going to consolidate into a private lend- with a private lender, I do encourage you to speak with a professional to understand what um, benefits you're giving up on the federal loan side. And that would include if, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but if um, President Biden decided to forgive loans, they would most likely be only federal loans.
Mm. What about people who have been paying and, you know, they would have been eligible for the, this public service forgiveness program, but now they're done? Is there any, any look back for them? Could they be reimbursed or is that a, a pipe dream? Yeah, unfortunately, the Department of Education did release some guidance saying that, you know, checks won't be sent with reimbursement or anything like that. So if you already paid off your loans, on the one hand, congratulations, that's a really big deal. But on the other hand, yeah, this this uh, new waiver isn't going to really apply. And for the, the waiver that we're talking about, you know, how long do uh, borrowers have uh, before they need to get the paperwork in? And again, this is still complicated. Right, right. This is complicated. In fact, my six word memoir about this was loan <laughs> forgiveness. Great, but also confusing. <laughs> so um, uh, the steps you should take is one, determine the type of loan that you have by logging into the student aid website. Um, determine what this look back or this waiver is going to impact. Um, and then secondly, you do still want to consolidate your loans. So while these loans that weren't indirect loans aren't their payments towards them now will likely be considered, which is great. You still want to consolidate into a direct loan so that future payments count towards PSLF. And you have until October 31st, 2022 to do that. Um, but I would probably do it as soon as possible. The one caveat is, again, I'd speak with a professional because obviously anytime you change your loan up, you want to understand how that's going to impact, um, you know, your future payments. You still want to make sure that you're under one of the income-based repayments. Um, that's important for this. And you want to use the PSLF help tool, which is on the studentaid.gov website to both submit verification of your employment, make sure your employer is a qualifying one, and also um, you want to submit the PSLF form, which can also be found on that studentaid.gov website. Maggie Jandro, thanks so much uh, for the context you provided and for some helpful advice for listeners who may be able to apply for this waiver. Again, Maggie is financial advisor and partner with Jandro Wealth Management in Farmington. Maggie, thank you. Thanks, Lucy. Again, that website is studentaid.gov. Gov. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. We'll be back tomorrow.